Dennis Kinlaw was the president of Asbury College for 18 years, leading the school through the 1970 revival. In 1983, he founded the Francis Asbury Society to promote the message of scriptural holiness. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. Let's bow our heads together again for a moment. Our Father, we would not come to your word without looking to you and asking you to give us your Holy Spirit to interpret it. We know that we need his enlightenment. We need his touch to see the truth that's there. So give us eyes beyond the human this morning as we look to you to see you and to see your ways. And we will give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. Carrie is passing around a sheet that has on it uh, a passage of Scripture, uh, eight verses from the 119th Psalm. And uh, I want you to keep that where you can look at it, because that's what I want to get to and uh, dig from. Uh, and I, uh, the translation will, I'm sure, be a little different from the one that's in your Bible, because uh, it's one that uh, I put together for better or for worse and maybe for worse, but uh, nevertheless, I'd like for you to see, because the translation uh, has something to do with the way that, uh, obviously, with the way that I'm going to interpret this passage. Don't hesitate to look at your own to see the difference in your translation and the one that is here. The difference will be very, differences will be very small, but uh, maybe significant. I don't know about you, but there are many formidable passages in the scripture for, for me. I find myself coming to them and saying, uh, this is like Mount Everest and I don't have the capacity to make this one. Uh, I'm sure that my formidable passages are not yours and that your formidable passages are not mine. But there's one that we probably share together, uh, at least from some angle, and that's Psalm 119. Its length is big enough to intimidate uh, most of us. And so uh, I find that uh, I'm this day late in my life uh, really trying to come to grips with what is contained in that uh, the longest chapter in the Scripture. Now, you and I know certain portions of that. There are certain verses that have influenced us across the years that are precious to us. You will remember the ninth verse, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his ways? By taking heed unto thy word. I suspect there are a great many of us here that memorize that at one time or another. Or the eleventh verse, Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against you. Or the hundred and fifth verse, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Now you'll notice that the translation that I used is the King James, because that's what I memorized when I was a kid. And your translation will use a little different English, but basically the content is the same. It's interesting to me that the commentators have had trouble with the 119th Psalm and have not always known what to do with it. Usually the more liberal the commentator has been, the faster he was to dismiss it and say there was little of interest here. In fact, I've never found a great many people who were enthusiastic about the 119th Psalm. And I suppose uh, uh, one of the 
keys to clues to that is uh, the amount of space that commentators have given to this in their commentaries. I have two large commentaries on my shelf on the Psalms. One I'm by a German scholar named Hans Joachim Krauss. And it's interesting, he takes the 73rd Psalm, which has 28 verses, and he gives 10 pages to it. He takes the 132nd Psalm, which only has 18 verses, and he gives 10 pages to it. But when he comes to the 119th Psalm with 176 verses, he gives 12 pages to the whole thing. And you get a little bit of the feeling that uh, he wanted to get through this as fast as he could and get on to better territory. I have another commentary. It is one in the Old Testament Library series published by Westminster Press. Arthur Weiser, again a German scholar. And when he deals with Psalm 73, he gives it nine pages for 28 verses. He gives Psalm 118 with 29 verses, six pages. But when he comes to 119 with 176 verses, he gives just a shade over a page and a half. So with a page and a half, he's handled 176 verses of Scripture. Now, it's long, but for most of us, it's not only long, it's monotonous. It uh, is very stylized, it's structured, very formal, so that uh, many of us, when reading it, feel there's something very artificial here. You probably know that it's put together on an acrostic pattern. Now, you know what an acrostic is. There are other psalms that do it where they will take the 22 letters of the alphabet and they will begin each verse with a word, the first letter of which is that letter in the alphabet. Like the first letter, if it were in English, you know, the first line would be A, the first letter of the second line would be B, the third line would be C. But whoever gave to us 119 Psalm did it a little different. He gives us eight verses with each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And since there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and 22 times 8, that's why you have 176 verses. And it is structured that way. Now, the minute you put that kind of restraint on your selection of vocabulary, you inevitably have done, to a certain extent, limited your free creativity in expression. And so there is a formalized character about it. And along with that, you've got an incredibly repetitive vocabulary. If you have read it through and looked at it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There are eight or nine words that are repeated uh, almost endlessly. And those words are law, testimony or testimonies, precepts, statutes, commandments, ordinances, judgments, and words. And you will find that oftentimes in a stanza or a strophe of eight verses, at least six or seven or eight of those words, and sometimes the same word will be used two or three times, uh, you will find them over and over and over again. So if you want to learn the basic Hebrew vocabulary that has to do with the law of the Old Testament, all you got to do is read Psalm 119. By the time you get through, you've got those words padded well in your mind. It's interesting, the first eight verses are typical. In the first eight verses, in the first verse, you get the word law. In the second verse, you get the word testimonies or decrees, depending on which translation you take. In the third verse, you get the word ways twice, God's ways. 
In the fourth verse, you get precepts. In the fifth verse, you get statutes. In the sixth verse, you get commandments. In the seventh verse, you get ordinances. And in the eighth verse, you're back to statutes again. And every strophe, every stanza is similar in that. There are only a handful of verses that do, do not have some word in the verse that is synonymous with the Hebrew word for law or instruction or for precept. Like you get verse 90. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. And there's not a word in there about the law. It is very rare in the, in the 119th Psalm. Or verse 76. Let your steadfast love become my comfort according to your promise to your servant. But when I looked at it in the Hebrew, I found the word promise was the word for word. <laughs> so you've got this play like a theme that a composer is going to drum into your head until you cannot escape it. It is there passage by passage by passage. Now, I did just a quick analysis of the first 50 verses. And in the first 50 verses, and these are, this is representative of any 50 in the psalm. The first 50 verses, the word law occurs five times, the word testimony seven times, the word ways four times, the word precepts five times, the word statutes eight times, the word commandments eight times, the word ordinances six times, and the word word eleven times. Now, I haven't added those up. I should have. 17, 25, 33, 38, 42, 49, 54 times in 50 verses, you've got those words, synonyms for the law of God. Now, it's clear what he's uh, talking about. But the interesting thing is he's not talking, he's singing. <laughs> and he is singing for joy. <laughs> over this thing that becomes monotonous to our Western commentators. It is about the Word of God, and all you have to do is think for a moment and know that the Word of God was what made Israel Israel. If you want to know what made Israel different from all the rest of the nations in the world, is what this guy's singing about. What Christ is to us, the Word is to this guy. And there seems to be a relationship between those two. Because when Jesus came, John said about him in the beginning was the Word. Now God gave the Word, the spoken, the written Word in the Old Testament. He gave to us the living incarnate Word in the New. Now they, Israel, possessed the Word of God and it was their glory. And so it is appropriate that the longest chapter in the Old Testament should be a tribute to this. Now. Uh, since I had the privilege in graduate school and later in teaching to study something of the life and literature of Israel's neighbors in that ancient world, I find a remarkable amount of sympathy in me for the joy that this psalmist finds in the Word of God because it came to him as a light, like a light to a person in a dark place, and it's meaningful to him. Now, some of the commentators say, say this emphasis upon the law is the beginning of what we think of when we hear, hear the word Pharisee in the New Testament. Somebody who's obsessed with the law, who's somebody obsessed with keeping it very accurately and in minute detail in such a way that it becomes an incredible burden 
and you become obnoxious to the people around you. They see in it the beginning of what ultimately was expressed in what we speak of as legalistic rabbinic Judaism. But it's interesting, if you look closely, you'll find something very different, it seems to me. If you will look closely, you will find that uh, his interest in the law is there because the psalmist is interested in the one who gave him the law. And it's through that law that he gets a glimpse of what the eternal God, the Lord of Lords, is like. If you will examine the eighth strophe, the one which is for the letter Chet, the one of the H's in the Hebrew alphabet. It's the eighth one. Listen for a moment. Just listen, if you will, uh, for this. Yahweh, and he uses a personal name, or if you want to use the title, which we usually use in translating, the Lord is my portion. That's getting personal. Okay. The Lord is our portion, my portion. I promise, O Lord, to keep your word. I entreat, I implore the favor of your face. Isn't that interesting? Do you ever find yourself praying and maybe you've you got your eyes shut and I don't know about you, maybe you've got your head buried in the bed or buried in a pillow or something and you've got everything shut out and you just wish that for a moment there'd be a break in the darkness and there you could see him because you know he's there. Now that's getting rather personal. I don't count that as legalism when there is something within you that you, you've gotten to that place where your spirit is crying out for him. And so the psalmist says, you're my portion. I entreat, I implore the favor of your face with all my heart, with everything within me. I want to see your face. Now, that's the kind of motivation that you have in the psalmist here. Be gracious to me according to your promise. I've considered my ways and have turned my steps to your statutes. Now, you and I'd be a little more comfortable if he had said, I have considered my ways and turned my steps toward your ways. But for the psalmist, there's not a whit of difference between the statutes and the ways of the Lord. He said, I've tried my way. And he said, I long for something better. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, I find in, in this exactly what you find in the New Testament when Paul speaks and says, don't live in the flesh, don't walk after the flesh, walk after the Spirit. Because if you walk after the flesh, you'll find it's death. But if you walk after the Spirit, you will find it is life and joy and peace. Now, it isn't said in our language, but it seems to me that is exactly what he is saying. I've looked at my ways, and they don't work. I'm always in worse shape than I was before when I, when I uh, follow my ways. I've seen your ways, and that's the way I want to go, and his heart is crying out for it. I've, uh, I will hasten, and I will not delay to obey your commandments. Though the wicked bind me with ropes, so that I can't do what I want to do, he says, I will not forget your law. And as soon as they turn me loose, 
I'll be back doing the thing that my heart cries out to do, and that's to get as close to you as I can get, O Lord, and walk as close to your ways as it's possible for me to walk. At midnight, I rise to give you thanks for your righteous laws. That's pretty good piety, isn't it? In the best sense of the term. When in the middle of the night, you get up and stop your sleep just to praise him for the excellence of his ways. I am a friend to all who fear you, to all who follow your precepts. The earth is filled with your love, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. Now you and I and modern evangelicals, we like that. The earth is filled with your love, O Lord. But we feel a disjunction with that next line when he says, teach me your decrees. Because you see, decree sounds as if he's thumped us on the head with something that is a burden. The psalmist feels none of that. The psalmist says, the earth is filled with your love. That love is so gracious in coming to me that the deepest desire of my being is that I can walk in your ways and be, live in your, in your ways. Okay. Now, a careful reading shows it's not the law that is the prime factor in the psalmist's life. It is the Lord himself. It is the Lord that the psalmist seeks, but it is in his word that he finds him. Now, I don't know about you, but New Testament, I live on this side of Calvary and I live on this side of Pentecost, but I don't find a way to improve on that. I don't know about you, but the place where I find him best is when I'm buried in his word. Because when I'm not buried in his word, it's easy to hear Dennis Kinlaw instead of him. You remember Luther said, uh, the scripture is the manger in which you find the Christ child. Well, uh, uh, I find that uh, here is Luther 1,500 years after Calvary saying exactly the same thing which the psalmist said, in those years before, that it is in his word that he comes to us. I don't know about anybody else, and most of you have heard me speak so many times, you've heard every, every good line I will ever have, but uh, uh, when I read, the thing I find is, you know, the first chapter doesn't mean too much, but uh, get in the second chapter and something catch me, I say, well, that's interesting. Get in the third chapter and I say, man, that's pretty good. Get in the fourth chapter and I think, do I have to quit? And I know that then I'm beginning to get where I'm supposed to be in relation to him to hear what he has to say to me. Now, uh, all of these words that we use, the nine special, the synonyms for law, speak simply of God's ways. And the psalmist has come to love God's ways because he loves him. He just loves his ways because he loves him. Yahweh is his portion. He wants to see his face. He values his grace. His relationship to Yahweh determines every other relationship in his life. I don't know about you, but what I hear, I hear an echo of seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all other things will fall into their proper place. He says, his relationship to Yahweh determines every other relationship in his life. At midnight, he rises to seek his face and to thank him. 
And the love of this kind of God fills the psalmist's world so that everything around him is hallowed. Now, uh, to me, there is a beauty in that. The legalese, the legal language, the psalmist, as we said, has looked at his own way, and he likes uh, the Lord's better. He sings about Sinai, and we sing about Calvary. But there are two mountains, aren't they? And the person revealed on each mountain is the same person. And there's not a conflict between the two if we understand the word of God. Now, uh, this word that has come to him has made a difference in his life. So much that he reflects a state of grace that as far as I'm concerned, there are many of us who live hundreds of years, centuries, and now almost 2,000 years after Christ. Those of us this side of Calvary have not approximated. And uh, that's the reason I want to look at the next. God has dealt where he sings about how God has dealt with him. You have done well by your servant, O Yahweh, according to your word. Teach me the goodness of insight and knowledge, because I believe in your commands. Before I was humbled, I was wandering, but now I keep your word. You are good, and you do good. Teach me your statutes. The arrogant ones have smeared me with lies, but I keep your precepts with all my heart. Their hearts, the arrogant hearts, are gross like fat, but I delight in your law. It has been good for me that I was humbled, that I might learn your statutes. The instruction of your mouth has been better for me than thousands of gold and silver. Now, uh, it's a very interesting uh, verse to this hymn with its uh, eight stanzas, or 22 stanzas. You've done well by your servant, Lord. wonder how old he was. <laughs> you see, I, I say that. I'm 74. So I look back and I say, Lord, you've done well by your servant. You've been extremely good to your servant. Now, nobody in this crowd's that old except me. But uh, that gives me, uh, that means it's, it means more when I say it than does anybody else in the crowd because he's had longer to demonstrate his goodness to me, and he has been. You have done well by your servant, O Lord, according to your word. This man's not complaining about his lot in life, is he? He's happy about his lot in life. He says the Lord has done well by him. Teach me the goodness. Now, uh, you can use another word if you want to for goodness, the value if you want to, but the Hebrew, Hebrew word comes from the same word that you get when God looked at his creation and said it is good, very good. Two, goodness. Teach me the goodness of insight. And you know, insight is uh, good, isn't it? And knowledge. When you understand what's going on, how, mu how much happier you are. I don't know about you, but one of the reasons I love to study the Scripture is the more I study it, the more insight I have. The more I understand me. And the more I study it, and the more I understand me, the more I understand you. Because <laughs> we're all alike, aren't we? There's not a whit of difference in any of us, except a bit of degree. But he says, uh, 
Teach me the goodness of insight so I can understand. Before I was humbled, now some translations say afflicted. We'll come back to this, but let me hold to this translation. Before I was humbled, I was wandering. And the word which is used here for wandering is a strong word. It means you're just getting into all sorts of messes. <laughs> it's the kind where the guy looks back and says, how did I ever get into this kind of mess? All my fault, I was stupid. Now he said, before I was humbled, I was wandering. <laughs> but I don't want to wander anymore, so what do I do? <laughs> I keep your word. <laughs> I take your word, your way. That's the equivalent of the New Testament walking in the Spirit, you see. You are good, and you do good. And I think he's backing up to what he said in the first verse, where you've done well, you've done good by your servant. Lord, you've done good by me. The arrogant ones have smeared me with lies. But... uh When the proud one's in the earth, and there is a pride in sin, isn't there? It's not a bad translation. The Hebrew word zedim is uh, used in the Psalms. These are the, these are the people that give the psalmist trouble. And it means they're the boiling ones in their anger, in their wrath, hostile and arrogant. He says, uh, they've smeared me with lies. Have you ever been lied about? Have you ever really been lied about? If you've ever been lied about, you know what pain is. <laughs> if you're a normal human being. And if you're a Christian, it's much more painful than it is for the worldly. Because you commit your life to truth. And then somebody misrepresents you. So the psalmist says, I've been there. I've been smeared. It's interesting. Uh, <laughs> Some of the translations use the word besmeared, which it seems to me to be a little stronger word, to be besmeared with, with lies. I've been besmeared with lies. What's my response? I keep your ways. I just keep my nose pointed toward your way and keep going. Uh, my business is not to respond to the accusations and not to let them throw me to one side but just to keep going, following you. But I keep your precepts with all my heart. Their hearts are gross like fat, but I delight in your law. Uh, you know, uh, I don't know what figure you see there, but the fat guy has trouble moving, doesn't he? And he has trouble responding quickly. The gross guy. But he says, I have a delight. I delight in your law. It has been good for me that I was humbled in order that I might learn your statutes. The instruction of your mouth has been better for me than thousands of gold and silver. Now here's a guy who's not unhappy with the lot that God has given him. He's rejoicing in how good God has been to him. And he just finds himself looking up and saying, you've, been, you've done good by me. I want you to know my gratitude. 
Now, let me tell you how good God has been to him. <clears throat> let me go back through what he says in the rest of Psalm 119 about himself. Well, he says, I'm an alien in a strange world. Have you ever been a foreigner? And you didn't have a home to go to? There are not many of us in this crowd who've ever been in that shape. We've been in foreign situations where we always knew we could go home. Have you ever been a foreigner and there was no home to go to? He said, I'm an alien. He says, uh, the insolent hold me in scorn and contempt. Do you have people around you who hold you in scorn and contempt? The people in power positions plot against me. Now, the text calls them princes, but that's they're the people in the power positions, and they plot against him. He says, yes, I know what sorrow is. He says, I live in dread of disgrace because a believer never gets never gets used to be to disgrace. And when you've been lied about and people hold you up in obloquy, there's pain in that. He says, the Zadim, these arrogant ones, taunt me. And they say cutting things about me. Isn't it interesting how, how painful a word can be spoken about? You just, you know, ooh, okay. He says, these arrogant ones uh, hold me in derision. Painful to be laughed at, isn't it? Okay. They besmear me with lies. They subvert me with guile. I am persecuted. The arrogant ones look for ways to trap me, to destroy me. I am sorely afflicted. I have plenty of enemies, and they despise me. Trouble and anguish befall me. You've done good by me, Lord. And I want to thank you. I wake up in the night to praise you because you've done good by me. You know, it's so easy to slide over <laughs> these verses. But there you get the tension in the 119th Psalm. A man that has experienced all of the negatives. And he looks up and he says, Lord, let me sing a little. <laughs> I want to sing because you've done good by me. Now, how can a guy do this? How can a guy live through that and sing? Uh, you know, I think it should have been more difficult for a person in the Old Testament than for a person in the New. Because we know a lot more than these guys writing in the Old Testament. How could he have all these negatives in his life and sing? You will notice uh, in, the, in the eight verses, let me give you the key verses now that are the most powerful verses in these eight verses between 65 and 72. Verse 67. Before I was humbled, I was wandering. But now I keep your word 
and I don't have to, I don't get in those same messes anymore. <laughs> because I live by your word. But it took a humbling to get me to the place where I paid that kind of attention to your word. Look at verse uh, 71. I've told you that you've done good by me. It was good for me that I was humbled. The Septuagint translates that. It was good for me that you humbled me. <laughs> and he says, Lord, you are the one. That's what the Septuagint says. And it's implicit in the Hebrew, if you know the Old Testament. It's good for me that I was humbled, because in being humbled, I have learned your ways. And you know, <laughs> I don't believe there's any other way to learn his ways. <laughs> It's going to take pain and discomfort <laughs> to get us to where we can see his ways. Now, let me mention something here that I think is implicit here and may be developed explicitly elsewhere in the Old Testament. It has been good for me that I was humbled so that I could learn your ways. Does that mean that he says, uh, Lord, I'm glad I've known what it's been to be an alien because I learned where my security was. It wasn't in place, it was in you. I'm glad that the insolent have held me in scorn and contempt because I've learned that it's your approval that counts. And if I've got your approval, I can live without the other. It may hurt, but to have you say quietly in the depths of my soul while other people scoff, I like you. I'm pleased with you. Then, you know, the other stuff falls off sort of like rain off a duck. He says, I, I think he's saying, you know, you've been good to me because the power people have been against me. Because I've learned who holds the ultimate power and who ultimately determines the ultimate positions. He says, uh, it's all right that I've known sorrow. And yes, I dread disgrace in the eyes of men. But man, I can live with that as long as there's no cloud between me and you. And if I can see your face, is that why he wanted to see his face? Because he didn't have a face around him that was, that was friendly? He said, I want your face, I need your face. If we get his face and his pleasure, then we can take the others. He said, I can take the taunting of the Zadin and the derision of these arrogant ones who would subvert me with guile. I can take their persecution I can take their efforts to destroy me. They're afflicting me. I can take their the trouble and anguish that comes. Because if I've got you, that takes me back to that preceding strophe where he said, you are my portion. And if I've got you, that's enough. <laughs> now, uh, do you know any people on this side of Calvary who haven't learned that?
<laughs> There's some of us in this room that need to learn a way of a lot more about it, aren't there? Now, here is this guy 3,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago at the, at the minimum. I have a millennium before Christ at the earliest and maybe a millennium before Christ. And he says, I've learned some New Testament principles. Now, uh, let me talk for a minute about the verb in this strophe that interests me the most. Now, you'll forgive me, I used to teach, uh, and so I get interested in, in language, verbs and nouns, because there are always stories in them. The whole story in this, to me, is in one Hebrew verb. It is the verb anah, and it means to be brought low. Now that's the Hebrew. The Greek of this is a word that's, there are different forms. Kraus. It has a synonym that is used with it very often. You'll see them going together. Tapenos. Both of these words are used to translate, are used in the New Testament to translate, are used in the Septuagint and then come into the New Testament to translate the Hebrew noun, ana, or you get it like this, you get it like this. Have you ever heard this line? Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am prous and tapenas in heart, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now it's interesting, This the noun of this or the adjective of this is never used in the Old Testament for God. But it is used in that priceless passage. Used in the New Testament on Palm Sunday. Behold, your king comes to you. Anna, Kraus, and Tapenas. <laughs> Behold, your king comes to you, meek and lowly. Riding upon a donkey and upon its foe. It's interesting, I think what you've got is a play on two words, power and brokenness. Now, are they opposites or are they synonyms? The world says they're opposites. <laughs> but the psalmist says, I found their synonyms. 
and it is a different way of thinking. And if I hadn't been brought low, I would have never learned that the two are the same thing. Because when they are opposites, what you have, the power that appears to be power, is a lie. Because you see, uh, I don't know, there, there, there's stacks of things that come to my mind when I come to this. I must needs go home by the... For there's no other way but... How do you win? <laughs> You win by mastery, overcoming, or do you win by brokenness? The psalmist says, I was humble. And when I was humbled, I learned where the power really is. Because what conquered death, hell, and the grave was the broken, bleeding body of our Lord on the cross. Now he said, if I want to follow him, There are great benefits in following him. But if I'm going to follow him, the only way I can get there is to be an alien. To have the insolent hold me in contempt and scorn. To have the power players plot against me. To have the Zadim, the arrogant ones, taunt me and hold me in derision. To have them besmear me with lies. Because the only way to get through to the real victory that my heart cries for and to get to the God who revealed himself in Jesus and in the cross is to go the same way the sun went. Now, let me tell you why I'm interested in this. Do you remember on Easter Sunday afternoon, Cleopas and his friend were headed home. They'd come to Jerusalem to see the kingdom of God established. And they knew the king. And they came to celebrate his inauguration. They came to cheer as he went, rode down to the street to the White House, moved in, took control. And they watched him put in manacles, stripped, nailed to a cross, and they watched him die. Now I wonder what they were thinking as they went. You know, we were fools. I doubt that. I suspect they were saying, boy, this hasn't turned out the way we thought it ought to turn out. But man, even if it's a lie, it's the best thing I've ever heard. <laughs> even if it was false, it's better than any truth I've ever known. And they're stumbling along in this. And a stranger shows up. <laughs> 
and says, why are you so sad? And they said, you mean you're a stranger? You haven't heard what's happened? We knew the kingdom had come, and now it's all shattered. And Jesus started with Moses and the prophets and said, do you mean you were surprised? It's turned out exactly like everything in the Old Testament said it was going to turn out. Now, I've spent part of my life teaching in a, theolog in a theological seminary. And I taught... Uh, Bible, and I taught Old Testament. And do you know I've never found a commentator who could tell me the scriptures Jesus used to prove to them that it turned out exactly the way they should have expected it? Because I suspect that it's buried in places like this. Where these two things become synonyms instead of antonyms. Now, uh, do you know what I think has been the great curse of American evangelicalism? We've never learned these are synonyms. And we think if we could get enough of this, we could straighten things out and make the world go right. You see, uh, we think the way, the secret is to go up. The psalmist said, I've learned the secret is to go down. <laughs> My time's up. But let me give you one quick illustration of what I'm talking about. I was in my 20s and was pastoring four small churches down in the Cabbage Patches in North Carolina. It was an interesting experience. Uh, I looked around for people in my congregation and knew what the new birth was. If I found one, he was usually over 60. I looked around in my community and if I found one, he was usually either a Pentecostal or a Southern Baptist. And uh, I tried to preach the gospel. <clears throat> I can remember the sort of wide-eyed looks on the faces of many of my people. I uh, had one of those churches that I had a lady in who taught the adult Sunday school class. I went to visit her, and I sent something different. I said, Margaret, tell me about your journey. Well, she said, you know, I grew up in the Universalist Church. And she said, um, my family was religious, so we all went to church. So she said, I fell in love with Tom, and we got married, and uh, he didn't have an interest in church, but I felt we should be religious. So there's no Universalist Church around, so I went to the Methodist Church. And I was so much more faithful than... Uh, most of the Methodists, the first thing I knew, I was elected teacher of the adult Sunday school class. 
And she said, in order to teach, I had to study the scripture. And she said, as I began to study, she said, I began to learn about Jesus. And I began to find that the New Testament says that he's God. She said, that blew all my universalism out. And I had to come to grips. Is this true or isn't it true? And she said, one day I met him. And I knew it was true. <laughs> that he's all the New Testament says he is. And she said, so what I learned as I studied, I taught on Sunday morning. And she said, as I taught, a division came. And there were some who said, boy, this is amazing. This is wonderful. And there are some people who said, uh, we're not so sure that she really isn't a Methodist. So she said, uh, I found there was hostility to me. And she said, I didn't know what to do. I was just studying the Bible and teaching it. And she said, they had a meeting and so they booted her out of the adult Sunday school class and put somebody else in. Well, when you got four churches, it's like uh, four kids. It's hard to keep up with them all at the same time and know everything going on. So that had taken place before I knew what was happening. When I heard what had happened, you know, I thought, wait a minute. Uh, this, this can't be. <laughs> She's the focal point around which my ministry is going to be built. So I went to see her. When I met her at the back door, good country fashion, you know, uh, she saw who I was and she stood there and burst into tears. And when I walked in, she said, uh, Pastor, she said, I was so excited. I found Christ in my own life. My husband watched what happened to me and he began to pay more attention in Sunday school. And I thought, Tom's going to find Christ too. And now they voted me out, booted me out. And I can't go to church anymore. I said, what do you mean you can't go to church anymore? Oh, she said, I can't go to a church where they don't want me. I said, Margaret, what do you mean you can't go to one where they don't want you? You don't have any option. Oh, she said, I couldn't go back and take Tom there. Tom would clean up the center aisle with every one of those people. We'll have to go somewhere else to church. And Tom would have. That's the kind of guy he was. Big, tough rascal. And I looked at her and said, Margaret, you can't leave. You've got to go. Now I want to ask you a question. God has done remarkable things in your heart. I want to know if he can give you enough grace that you can go back and sit on the third row and pray for the lady that they put in your place and do it without being too judgmental. Her eyes got wide as saucers. She said, that's impossible. I said, that's right, but do you think God could give you enough grace to do that? Staggered her. So she began to roll with that. She said, I don't know, but what about Tom? I said, you got to leave Tom to the Lord. Do you know the next Sunday morning she showed up in that Sunday school class and sat down on the third row, looked up and smiled at the teacher, sat through the whole thing? 
Now, I watched that with great interest. I was coming to the end of my tenure in that pastorate. And, uh, you know, I was praying that something would happen before I left. But one morning I drove into the churchyard. I had a service at 9.30 in one church, and I had a service at 11 there. So I finished my service, 9.30 service, and 10.30, and got in my car and drove to the next one. When I pulled into the yard, the chairman of the board, Welly Gore, came running to my car. And the way he came, I knew there was something up. And he said, uh, Dennis, Dennis, have you heard about Tom? And I said, which Tom? He said, Tom McCollum. I knew something tragic had happened to Tom. And I said to him, nothing can happen to Tom yet. <laughs> he doesn't know Christ. Well, he said, you know, that's the funny thing. He says he got saved last night. I said, there's no revival going on. How can he get saved? I was a Southern Methodist in my 20s. He said, I don't know, but he says he got saved last night. I said, where is he? So I went running to Tom, and <laughs> I grabbed him, and I said, Tom, what happened to you? I said, it's that wife of mine. <laughs> he said, you know, when they booted her out of that Sunday school class, I was so mad I could have killed a whole bunch of them, particularly Willie Gore. <laughs> he, said, <laughs> he said, but you know, I watched her. She didn't quit. She kept going to church. And when we'd kneel by our bed at night and she'd pray, she'd pray for the woman that took her place. He said, you know, I watched that. He said, I didn't know what to do with that. He said, last night, she got outside of the bed and started to pray and I crawled out of bed and slid down the side of her and said, Margaret, if you're going to pray for anybody, don't pray for that bunch up there at that church. You pray for me. I'm the one that needs whatever it is you've got. And said, Dennis, Margaret led me to Jesus last night. Now, I want to tell you what I think the psalmist had learned. Do you know that the psalmist believed that every negative thing in his life God had sent to him? You know, we say the devil did it. And then we can kick. But the psalmist believed that everything that happened in his life was because of God, that Yahweh pulled the strings on everything. And if they were sneering at him and deriding him and besmearing him with lies, he said, it's Yahweh I've got to deal with, not those guys. He's the one that's in charge. And so he found himself saying, what is it, Lord? And the Lord said, if you'll embrace that, you'll learn an incredible secret. You'll learn a secret that the world will never see until they nail my son to a cross. That these two things are not antonyms. They're synonyms. Now, we don't know that. The American church. It's interesting, we've had more discussion of the Holy Spirit in the last 50 years than in any period in human history. And we know less about that 
Do you hear me? And our society is rotting. 